Hello and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. In some respects, the last few years have been a golden age for English football. The Premier League finale was one of the most exciting in memory. England have a team who are both successful and socially engaged. And at the time of recording, the women's team has just celebrated its biggest crowds ever and an 8-0 victory over Norway. But beneath this, there's been a steady drumbeat of something far less pleasant. All over the country since lockdown eased, we've seen a return of football hooliganism with a spate of the kind of incidents which we thought had been largely left back in the 1980s. So what's going wrong in football at the moment? Is hooliganism really on the rise or is this just a moral panic? Who is to blame and what can be done about it? Joining me to answer these questions is one of the country's leading authorities on football crowd violence and police responses to it, Professor Jeff Pearson of the University of Manchester. Thanks for joining us in the bunker, Jeff. It's a pleasure. So firstly, the perception from TV and social media is certainly that there's been a marked uptick in football violence since fans came back after lockdown. Is that an accurate assessment? I think it probably is. Usually it's quite difficult to identify national trends when it comes to football disorder. We tend to get local increases in some places at the same time as there are decreases in other places. But this is probably the first time, certainly this century, that I think we can say almost certainly that there is a bit of a national uptick, certainly in lower level disorder and antisocial behaviour at football. And for context, how does this compare to what we'd think of as like the bad old days of football violence? And what was like the high watermark of that? It's really difficult to know what was the high watermark of that. You know, any time really from the late 1950s through to probably the mid-1990s has been uh, identified as being the, the high level in terms of disorder. And we tended to get different things. So in the late 50s and 60s and 70s, it tended to be uh, antisocial behaviour and nuisance and vandalism, particularly connected to younger fans. And then in the 80s, it was much more of a problem of actual physical interpersonal violence, which sort of continued through to the to the mid-1990s. Probably what we've got at the moment actually is a lot more reminiscent of those early days in terms of antisocial behaviour and nuisance than the type of organised, quite serious violence that we saw in the 80s. So as you say, I mean, crowd disorder can take many different forms and it's a bit of a movable feast in that sense. What's the most common kind of trouble that we've been seeing over the past year or so? I would say it really is low-level disorder, nuisance, antisocial behaviour, really fans who've been locked down, letting their hair down and just hitting it a bit harder than perhaps they used to because they've not had the opportunity to engage in that sort of transgressive, boisterous behaviour. So I've not seen anything to suggest that we've got a significant increase in actual physical organised violence. I don't think that's what we're seeing at all. But what we are seeing is unpleasantness, antisocial behaviour and uh, and the type of issues that were definitely less prevalent before the lockdowns. And when you say antisocial behaviour, specifically, how's that manifesting? You know, we've seen pitch invasions, we've seen players and managers being confronted on the pitch, we've seen fans throwing stuff in the air, um, both in grounds and um, and outside. We've seen open um, Class A drug taking. Um, so that's a sort of that's the sort of thing that we're talking about. And what, in terms of the profile of the people who are getting involved, has that changed in any way over the last few years? Well, I don't think so. What we what we are seeing, um, and I think is probably connected again to the end of lockdown, is we're seeing a lot of young fans becoming involved. So teenage 
fans. And, and of course, you have to remember that normally uh, the sort of natural course of football fandom is that through the course of the season, you will have teenage fans that will stop going to the matches with their parents and they'll start going with their mates and maybe midway through a season that they start doing that. So you get a sort of drip, drip, drip of of new blood, really, in terms of football fandom, particularly away from home. And of course, we've not had that because of the 16 months out of live football. Essentially, we've got two years worth of teenagers that suddenly are too old to go with their parents, not interested in going with their parents, and are all turning up. And we haven't really had the opportunity for them to sort of learn the ropes, really, to learn the the boundaries of accepted behaviour and how self-regulation works and the sort of dangers of going too far at football. So I think that is one problem. But undoubtedly, it's been pretty much everybody that has been, um, you know, all the demographics that have been involved in this uptick. So broadly speaking, I mean, you've mentioned um, obviously there's a sense of people letting their hair down after lockdown, but what are the other main theories as to why hooliganism's come back in this way? I think it's more that um, actually, you know, the new fans don't necessarily know what the norms are, what accepted behaviour is. But we also have issues which almost certainly are relating to the management of football crowds. So in terms of policing, good policing strategies relating to football crowds are based on developing relationships and negotiation between local football policing units and um, the travelling support in particular. And again, you know, we've had 16 months where it's not been possible for the police to strike up those relationships or maintain those relationships. And when you speak to police officers about the trouble that we did see last season, typically what they would say is, well, I've not seen these people before. I don't know who they are. Um, so that's definitely been one problem. There's been a great challenge in terms of the, the policing of um, football. Um, and the other thing, which is undoubtedly a massive problem and may be slightly more difficult to shift, is the dramatic shortfall in terms of quality security and stewarding at stadiums. Obviously, during lockdown, it wasn't just football that shut. It was gigs, it was pubs, it was nightclubs. If you were a, a good doorman or doorwoman, you were typically had to go elsewhere to, to earn a living. And a lot of them just simply haven't come back. That has been exacerbated undoubtedly by, by Brexit. If you ask any of the safety officers at football clubs, pretty much without exception, they will tell you that they really, really struggle to get good security staff in at the moment. Typically, they are over recruiting, but those people simply aren't turning up. Is there any sort of political dimension to it? Because when I used to go to the football as a as a child, like back in the sort of eighties, early nineties, there was a very obvious element of you know either the National Front earlier and then the BNP later on. Is there any of that sort of political edge to it anymore? Well, generally, English fans, you know, even going back to the eighties, have been fairly apolitical. Uh, the National Front always tried to get involved in football and football fans involved in in their politics and and, and didn't have an awful lot of success. Uh, the same with Combat 18. But that said, there has undoubtedly been an inc- there has been a general lurch to the right, hasn't there, politically in this in this country, and that will be reflected amongst football fans as much as it is in all other areas. But that's not the same as the increase in disorder that we're seeing. I think it's fair to say, yes, there's probably been an increase in right wing expression at football and football fans are probably more right-wing now than they were 10 years ago, uh, reflecting society. 
But I don't think that that's connected to the problems that we're seeing in terms of disorder. I don't think it is uh, racially motivated or even particular forms of racial expression. And generally, while there is a concern about online hate crime, my gut feeling is that actually the hate crime relating to protected characteristics such as race, but also um, sexuality, is still reducing and the chants that were acceptable even five years ago have become less acceptable now. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, probably the thing that alerted people to this more than anything was the very, very high-profile violence at Wembley last summer around the Euros final. What did you make of that? I mean, that seemed to be of a somewhat different order to what we might normally think of as football violence. Yeah, so I, I was I was asked to produce evidence for the uh, Baroness Casey review into the disorder. So I, I was able to, to go through the CCTV and read the documentation and um, even as far as the, the group WhatsApp chat for the um the people organizing the event at the time which as you can imagine was uh, was quite startling the casey review said it was the perfect storm and i think that's the way to to look at it the factors that were in play were unprecedented and it all essentially started with a combination of the redevelopment of the new wembley stadium or the area around it which suddenly has made the area around wembley stadium quite attractive to football fans, whereas it certainly didn't used to be. That was also um, exacerbated by the fact that the government felt that they could run an international tournament, the business end of which took place in this country, that they could relax the COVID restrictions for fans in stadiums, but they wouldn't make any provisions for fans outside of stadiums. So we didn't have fan zones, for example. International football tournaments haven't run like that for the last 30 plus years. So there were always going to be problems in terms of large numbers of ticketless fans rocking up at Wembley for the party once England got to the final. And there were around 30,000, slightly over 30,000 ticketless fans that that went to Wembley. And one of the things that we need to remember is that 25,000 of those left before kickoff. They didn't try and break into the stadium. They didn't necessarily cause problems. They left and went back and then watched it on the telly because that was the only place to watch it. And then we had the unusual situation where we had around 6,000 ticketless fans who suddenly had nowhere to go, were up against an outer security perimeter that wasn't fit for purpose, were highly intoxicated. There were failures in terms of the policing of those crowds. And essentially what we saw was spontaneous mass jibbing of the outer security perimeter and around 2,000 of those fans got into the stadium. I mean, speaking to friends who got caught up in that trouble there on the day, there was a very strong sense from them that things could have ended much more seriously than they did. Um, From that review, do you think there's an acceptance among the authorities of how badly things could have gone there? Absolutely. My own evidence and the evidence of other crowd um, experts into that review 
said that literally on a number of occasions that day, we were less than an inch from tens of fatalities. There was one trip or slip against the crowd control barriers at the outer security perimeter, one trip or slip as there was a baton push down the uh, down the Olympic steps. And had Marcus Rashford's penalty hit the inside of the post rather than the outside of the post, there was potentially a, a catastrophe waiting as the Italian fans who would have left after they'd have lost met the 6,000 English fans trying to get into the stadium. The review is very, very clear just how close we came to the most serious incident of, uh, you know, so most serious football crowd disaster since Hillsborough. Are there any other drivers that you think people are missing at the moment? I mean, you've mentioned cocaine use a few times there. Is that a bigger factor than people realise? The bottom line is we don't know with cocaine. The research suggests that the type of fan communities where cocaine is taken are also the type of fan communities that see elevated levels of aggression, transgression and misbehaviour. But that doesn't tell us that cocaine is driving that behaviour. And in fact, the alternative explanation, I think, is equally, if not more plausible, which is that if you are a football fan looking for a transgressive experience on a Saturday afternoon, that can include, you know, getting drunk with your mates, standing on tables, singing, setting off pyrotechnics, and also taking cocaine. It's, you know, it can be can part and parcel of that transgressive mm. experience, which takes you away from your everyday working life. So we don't have any evidence to suggest that cocaine is driving this disorder. And actually, if you look at cocaine use in this country and how it's quadrupled generally in the population since the mid-1990s, that, of course, has a reverse relationship with what we've seen in terms of football-related violence and disorder, which has reduced, certainly in terms of arrests, by about the same amount. So if you were just looking at the stats, you would say that the more coke people do, the uh, less likely they are to have a fight. I suspect that's not actually what's happening here. But yeah, we certainly don't have any, any evidence to suggest that cocaine is driving any increase. And in terms of combating hooliganism and looking at the kind of the, the longer view, what were the key things that worked in the past? Well, I think the key things that worked in the past are still in place. And, and actually, during the lockdown, there were a number of developments and there's a number of ongoing developments, which um, I think will be really useful. So, for example, the National Guidance on Football Policing was reviewed in 2020. And myself and Professor Cliff Stott at Keel had quite an input into the content of that. Um, and that puts a much greater emphasis on the police engaging in dialogue and looking to divert troublesome fans from the criminal justice system, if they can do. So a number of really significant and progressive changes there. I'm also expecting that in the next year or so, we will have a change to the national guidelines on public order policing, which will make it a lot clearer that actually socio-cultural gatherings such as football fans have, you know, equivalent rights in terms of their rights to freedom of expression and assembly, which again will force the police into a, you know, more progressive modes of crowd management, which we know are more successful. So I think we've got some really positive steps in terms of policing. And ultimately, good policing is one of the main pillars behind being able to manage football crowds successfully. The other is having proportionate laws. And one of the problems that we've got is we still have a legal framework in place 
which was essentially drafted in the 1980s. And some of those laws are completely counterproductive to disorder. Can you expand on that a little bit? What's counterproductive about them? Well, in terms of football banning orders on complaint, so these are football banning orders that are imposed without the fan being convicted of any offence, these have always had the effect of driving a wedge between football fan communities and football police units that utilise those orders extensively because it creates mistrust. So those orders have proven problematic in some areas of the country. Nationally, the biggest problem is still the Sporting Events Control of Alcohol Act, which makes it a criminal offence to drink alcohol within sight of the pitch. How does that make things more problematic? Well, it's likely that that has encouraged binge drinking before matches. It's almost certain that it encourages fans to arrive later at turnstiles, which creates crushes outside turnstiles and creates crushes on radial stairways and in concourses. What is absolutely definite is that it leads to crushed and unsafe concourses, particularly at half time, because that's the only place where fans can drink. And and those can essentially become no-go areas at times for the police. So we know that that is problematic. The other aspect of that same piece of legislation, which says you're not allowed to consume alcohol on what used to be called a football special going to a match, essentially pushes fans who do want to have a drink on the day onto the scheduled rail services, um, pushes them onto private vehicles, which means, again, it becomes much more difficult to police and there's much more likelihood of conflict between fans and members of the public. So that's a piece of legislation which, when it was brought in, it was it was a proper piece of panic law. It was rushed through Parliament in a day. The police didn't want it. There was a lot of opposition within football from it. And, you know, from the moment that it landed, it simply hasn't reduced alcohol consumption at football and it's created a lot of problems alongside it. When's that law up for review? Are you hopeful that might change? The fan-led review, which was led by um, Tracy Crouch MP, recommended that we trial alcohol consumption in sight, allowing alcohol consumption in sight of the pitch in um, Leagues 1 and 2 as soon as possible. I am still hopeful, because the government has accepted that, I'm still hopeful that will happen. And hopefully, you know, the, the outcomes of that will be will be good. Ultimately, however, the, the real problems that we see are actually higher up the football pyramid. It's in the Championship and the Premier League. So there isn't any official date when the legislation is up for review. I know for the first time that the government is starting to look at the whole legislative framework around football and there's actually a consultation which is running at the moment on that so you know it would be nice to see a complete overhaul of the the laws around football and we've we've essentially had four independent reports in the last 12 months that have to varying degrees all criticized the legislation around football but to put that in context that's been the first time really since this legislation was introduced that any there's been any formal criticism of the regime at all. So so I think something is happening and we may get some changes. Whether they are positive or negative is the big question. And just finally, as a hunch, what are your expectations for next season? Will the summer break have cooled things down or are you expecting things to be quite lively again? It's really difficult to call. My my suspicion is that it will calm down. 
And so far, my predictions on this have been have been right because I felt that this season was going to be problematic and I felt that this season was going to end quite badly, um, which, which it did. My suspicion is that over the summer, there's going to be a lot of fans getting knocks on doors from the police. There's going to be a lot of football banning orders served for this type of, sort of low-level transgressive behaviour. And with those banning orders, football communities will start to realise that actually you know, football stadiums in particular are not the type of places that you want to be engaging in um, in criminal activity because they are highly surveilled environments and the the policies of the police and, and, and crime for criminal prosecution service generally are to prosecute and, and look to seek convictions. So I think that the message will come across. I think that some problematic fans will be banned. Hopefully there'll be some self-regulation and hopefully things will calm down. The real danger is that the police stop doing what they've been doing for the last 10 years or so and start to police football crowds more reactively using greater numbers, using show of force tactics, using riot gear. And if they start to do that and move away from the dialogue-based approaches which have been so successful, then things could well continue as they are or even get worse. So, you know, my message to the police has always been on this, you know, hold your nerve um, and things will improve. Professor Pearson, thank you very much for joining me on The Bunker. Pleasure. Listeners, just a reminder that as an independent operation, The Bunker is kept on air by the direct support of people like you. If you're enjoying the shows we produce throughout the week, look us up on Patreon, where you can help us keep going for as little as £2 per month. The money you pledge goes directly to making the shows and also supports us in developing new series like Doomsday Watch and Origin Story, both of which are available to listen to right now. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast and you'll get your favourite shows early and without ads. Thank you for listening. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Justin Quirk. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer was Kasia Tomashevich. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>